Hello and welcome to the third podcast of SFS Smoke and Fire Safety. Here with you, you have Marco, Marketing and Product Manager for SFS, part of Excite Hargreaves. We are here to offer our expertise from design to commissioning of smoke control systems. We are highly committed with supporting the construction industry and we want to get and share different perspectives and insights from the experts we work with on a daily basis, providing an understanding of what is happening to our fast-paced changing industry. Aim of this podcast is to listen to the expert opinion. SFS will be completely and absolutely impartial. For any question and project involving smoke control, we want to be your focal point of knowledge. Therefore, get in touch with us. Today, here with us, we have Jairo Jaramillo from HDR, an employee-owned design firm specializing in engineering, architecture, environmental and construction services, counting more than 11,000 people all over the world. Can I now ask you, Jairo, to introduce yourself? Yeah, good afternoon, Marco. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Good to see you again after what was it probably about a few weeks ago that we saw each other at the City Yen Gala. So I am an associate mechanical engineer uh, here at HDR, and uh, I've been in the industry for uh, I've ent- entered the industry in February 2011, and have been with uh, HDR now almost uh, nine well almost nine years by the end of this year. Uh, yeah, doing a variety of projects, mostly the high-end residential sector, um, but also um, dabbling in commercial sector and uh, retail as well. Yeah, that's 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 my story. That's quite interesting. So we have a decade of experience, uh, and you did say when you wanted to uh, do this podcast with us, uh, you had two topics uh, you wanted to approach. I think the first one is technologies. So how these are used in the projects and what's the evolution you've seen all over these years. And I think the second uh, topic we can talk about today, it's uh, soft factors such as uh, networking, uh, public speaking and also mentoring. Uh, Am I right with this? Yeah, that's correct, Marco. I think, um, you know, love the opportunity again to be on the, you know, thank you very much for the opportunity to be on the podcast. It's something a little bit different. You've had two pauses so far, I noted from listening to the previous ones and um, you know, listening to them, I, I was struck by this this advice. You guys are very much at the forefront at the moment when we talk about technology and how things are are changing in our sector. And uh, you know, the every sort of technology and what we do in construction, it's so vast that bits of it are always changing all the time. But of course, having been in it for over ten years now, certainly I think everyone in the construction industry can point to the watershed moment for our industry has certainly been Grenfell. So I think with regards to smoke and fire safety, there is a lot of information coming out and you guys are sort of at the forefront as well, the education aspect of it, of uh, especially say with dampers, fire dampers, different classifications, um, how to install them correctly and specify them correctly. That's just one of sort of those examples of how the technology has has changed or is changing recently. But in taking it back to when I first started, I, I, I think it's almost it's quite interesting to see how over the 10 years things obviously you know it being just my 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 own personal viewpoint it's um, an experience things haven't almost changed that much the technologies uh never become too revolutionary i remember when i first came in and and chilled beans as a as a method of uh, cooling uh certainly office um, office spaces were you know gaining a lot of traction I remember doing taking maybe to stage two a job on it, and it was felt the fan cool units weren't going to uh, weren't going to survive. Um, and then you had uh, the the advances in electric motors, 
and all of a sudden they became they they came on racing back to the fore. I think that the job can be characterized by the technologies don't change that much, but what has happened is the pressures that drive their application. So what are the main drivers? What are the main factors that a client will want to hit? And there I certainly think that what has happened is uh, I've noticed how it's become way more sustainability driven over the last you know, five to six years. Suddenly it's the case of you know, my plant, what are its specific fan powers, what is um, its embodied carbon, these sorts of changes in the technology. So perhaps whilst the very basic premises of what we do, you know, the fundamentals, the thermodynamics, the fluid mechanics of what we do hasn't changed in many you know, dozens of years, the actual behind the scenes, the manufacturers are always bringing in those efficiencies. It's now extremely important for us to be able to say over the holistic consideration of a project, where is the reduction in carbon? Where is the reduction in energy use and harm that is done? So I think that's, that's from a sort of point of view of the actual plant being used. When you look at processes, the, the big thing, of course, is building information modelling. And that can mean many things to many people. But I do recall starting at Building Design Partnership in 2011 and 2012 and, and working with with uh, with Revit software. And this was obviously 3D modeling and it felt very futuristic um, at the time. And I have sort of been surprised at how there is still a space uh, in this work for, for 2D drawings, of course. Uh, but what has happened increasingly, and certainly here at for HDR, the last sort of three, four, five years, the access, the accessibility of a relatively cost-effective 3D working and a capability has increased. So it's now a tool which is way more accessible at uh, the level of someone like me, as opposed to one of our specially trained Revit coordinators. So our processes, our ability to visualize things is, is improving. I think the other thing to add would probably be the amount of data. We, of course, live in the era of big data. And when you look at it from the point of view of building services, of course, we're looking always to address the performance gap, uh, what a building does and how it actually performs versus how it was designed and intended to perform. And I think that availability of data is, is increasing, is huge and is very exciting because in the future or, or now and in the future of course we will be held way more accountable uh, to to our designs and we are able to looking through aspects like digital twin we have an excellent team doing that here we're getting closer and closer almost to that sort of here is my building live what is it actually doing i wish to zoom in on certain areas let's produce reports and of course the first step of being able to assess our projects and design better is knowing what we've done uh, in the past. So yeah, I, I'd say that's sort of the advances uh, that I've seen. And I think bringing it back to, of course, your area of expertise and your employer's area of expertise, we are seeing, as I said, when I mentioned earlier about Grenfell, it's always at the forefront of our minds, how safety conscious some of what we do uh, is, but even more so now. And I think the early engagement with fire engineering companies, fire engineering and smoke ventilation and the like and safety equipment manufacturers is becoming more and more important. You guys literally, I've been on projects where you have the power to say, you need more risers, you need less risers, you need this kind of ventilation strategy. And the core, we are just seeing it change in front of our very eyes at, at very early REBA stages, which of course is how it should be, because trying to incorporate, of course, those sort of decisions and your advice later on is, is where it becomes very difficult. Just want to pick up uh, from a few things uh, you mentioned. Uh, well, yes. my background is architecture and I 
also remember my first steps into the industry. That was back in uh, 2007, 2008. So it was literally very uh, primordial to talk about BIM. And I remember I started uh, swapping from AutoCAD into an, uh, an alternative to Revit. That was called uh, Oplan. Still a BIM software, but at that stage, yeah, you, you're, you're right. We were using it just like a 3D visualization tool rather than uh, fully understanding uh, the potentiality and what actually a tool like that can provide you in terms of uh, control, in terms of listing, in terms of uh, exporting information. So we're absolutely not aware of the power that such a big branch software could take into our industry. And I think one of the key uh, step changes uh, that maybe not in 2008, I think around about 2012, 2013, uh, it came in and that's uh, the integration. So as soon as the technology was embraced by consultancy firms, uh, actually this integration, so exchanging uh, these BIM models became much, much easier and people really started, I think, to realize uh, the power of uh, creating uh, BIM and sharing data. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's, it's thinking back to the sort of times that you were mentioning, sort of 2012, 2013, it was still perhaps an acceptable response to go into a project as a consultant and say, I work in 2D. And if the architect came along with 3D, we were always, of course, accustomed to having architects who would have uh, better visuals than us. But it's now no longer acceptable to do that. With BIM execution plans and agreements at the beginning of, at the outset of projects, it is possible to say we haven't priced for that and we will interact, uh, sorry, we will work in a 2D environment and we will produce 2D outputs. However, it is not acceptable anymore to say we will not interact with 3D, we don't understand it. It has moved on, as you say, that, that embracing of the technology uh, has certainly uh, improved and increased. And, and hopefully that's what sort of what first of many steps towards getting us to where, as you said, the technology and the power should be taking us or where we should be with it. But as you know, the construction industry is a, is a, is a powerful but slow beast. The inertia is high there. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the key introductions uh, back, uh, I think, uh, yeah, in those days was, was the understanding of uh, clash detection. Because I remember we were designing a very large uh, public building, but we were using this BIM modeling, uh, very primordial. But I still remember our structural engineers were detailing uh, everything in uh, AutoCAD 2D. Our HVAC designers as well, they just sent us uh, 2D drawings, sometimes in PDF as well. So we have to convert them into AutoCAD and then import them into the BIM uh, okay. software. And uh, the funds of formatting, yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, so I think we, we, we live in a very fortunate uh, period in a way now that really gives no excuses to code on quality and uh, do not look into a building in a proper way. I want to pick up another thing you did mention, and it's uh, hardware. Do you think uh, there has been changes maybe in uh, some of the software behind hardware? Um, so do you mean, I think if, if you're talking about the sort of control software, BMS, it's not really my area of expertise, but I imagine of course that um, there has been, um, I think when it comes to, if your question is more, say, about something which is more within my wheelhouse, as it were, which is the process, the, the, um, the way of managing teams, the way of um, productivity software, uh, the way of producing drawings and stuff, then yes, absolutely. I think the easier availability of, say, software as a service of online services of productivity software has, uh, has improved. 
I think going back to sort of the big data question, the, the amount of sort of data points that a large employer and management can take on, well, what are we doing? Uh, you know, what are we doing with this, with this staff, with this sort of team? Then that has uh, definitely has has improved. I mean, I was always ready to embrace the uh, the paperless office. And I remember arriving and I still did. I, I, I remember arriving and working in Visio when I when I arrived at BDP. And that quickly moved on to um, uh, Bluebeam, which is what we use here, and the ability to manipulate PDFs and quickly create sketches. That's that's very key. Um, so the, the the software which is available for me to do my work uh, has certainly improved. And now we're part of a larger company. We also have much better access to and more, I'd say, affordable access uh, to to the kind of software that yeah assists on assists us in our tasks. Picking up a different uh, thing you just mentioned, so carbon emission reduction. So, for example, if we travel on a plane, uh, we can maybe pay a couple of extra pounds and then uh, exchange these uh, carbon quotas. So carbon seems like it's a big thing from transportation to buildings to every, you know, every stage of our 24-7 lives. So specifically when it comes to buildings, uh, what do we actually mean with uh, reducing uh, the carbon emissions and how do you really optimize your designs? Well, I mean, it's it's the big, it is the big thing. And I think what I set out to be is realistic about what, how big a part of the pie I can really interact with when it comes to carbon reduction. But for us, it comes down to choosing as far as possible the most efficient systems, most efficient plants, uh, and trying to do as many things from a sort of a passive point of view using the, um, the sustainability sort of hierarchy, which I forget off the top of my head, but it's, it's the classic sort of, you know, first of all, you sort of be lean, um, you know, be green. There might be a be mean in there, but we do start off being able to see the early reaper stages it is a case of, right, well, what are we producing? What is the orientations of our buildings? How can we, first of all, make a good start? Then uh, it becomes a case of, ensuring that we are choosing uh, sort of emerging trying to choose emerging technologies which globally for the building take as much carbon reduction as possible and what are, what we found now is increasingly important and manufacturers are asking us about is um, EPDs they're sort of embodied carbon calculations for a piece of kit so if I'm choosing a condenser from manufacturer A versus manufacturer B and I have the information to say during the whole life cycle assessment of manufacturer A's uh, condenser manufacturer. Uh, there's so much CO tons of CO2 produced versus what B uh, manufacturer B is doing. So I think, say for us, the key things are passive measures, trying to advise the client on starting off on the right foot, and then when it starts getting into the nitty gritty and the later stages, choosing the right plant and choosing the right sort of systems. Uh, so I mean, in London now, what has become very clear is that the combustion is a dirty word in London. Really, almost overnight, it felt like we are no longer looking at natural gas boilers or CHP, and it's very much everyone is is looking at, at electric because whilst the capacity on the infrastructure is running to catch up, it is the infrastructure that is going to be decarbonized. It's much easier to decarbonize electricity production directly rather than, say, for instance, gas and natural gas production. That's that's the sort of the tools are, are at our disposal. And now when you then look at once a building has been built, we spoke before about big data, about um, post-occupancy evaluations, the performance gap. It's then looking at measuring what we've done. It felt like previously these were much more sort of theoretical exercises where we will now have the data 
and the building stock to be able to say, well, that worked in that way before. We've learned lessons from that. Let's now apply them going forward uh, even more. And of course, clients also lead this as well. They have the, they have the stock, they have the building portfolios, and they can say to us, perhaps it's the first time that we're working with them, but we have done this and we have seen that this um, this works for us. And then, of course, we can assess. So that, that those are the main tools for, for us in, in, in carbon uh, reduction of carbon. And when you look at what the building industry, of course, as a whole in a country like the UK contributes a very large portion of our, our total emissions, it's vitally important work. It feels uh, you know, you know, increasing so, and it's one of the, the best parts, I think, of the job is knowing that at that incredibly important effort worldwide that exists, you're at the forefront of that and you're playing an important part in it. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the outcomes of what you just said is that we are moving towards uh, what I like to call a green data-driven society equipped with the blue electricity. So literally, yes, I'm really seeing this change even here up in Manchester. So everywhere we are in a way transitioning to something hopefully greener and better for the future. Definitely. Now, I would like to investigate with you a little bit uh, what we call um, social skills, uh, soft factors, uh, mentoring. Uh, so what's your experience uh, with these? Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate in having had a very positive experience in, in that respect. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I studied mechanical engineering at university. I consider myself very fortunate to have been able to uh, apply what I, what I studied, then turn it into a career. You know, we're, we're 11 years down the line. I wouldn't stick with something so long if, if I wasn't enjoying it. But um, I think mentoring is, is extremely important. I've had one, uh, you know, solid mentor uh, well, I've had many, but there's been one long-standing. You know, I've worked with him. I mentioned his name, not embarrass him. But uh, having my, my career is incredibly important to me. It's a, it's a profession. Given the hours that we do, it, it, it's so important. I think to enjoy what you do, enjoy uh, the holy trinity. Perhaps of it is to be able to enjoy what you do, enjoy where you do it, and enjoy who you do it with. And I can, you know, categorically say that I do all three in terms of working enjoying what I who I do uh, my work with uh, mentoring is incredibly important it's a um, it's a huge influence it's there's an element I think of paying it forward I look at the sector uh, and, and it really only has longevity and a future our sector if people are doing that sort of informal training and that informal uh, you know assistance uh, of one another I've had many instances in, in my career when run up against issues and they can range from I've never done this sort of damper before. I've never used this kind of hydronic system to I'm in real issues here with where my the direction of my career. I, I think I'm maybe a bit listless. I don't know how to get chartered. And, you know, mentorship can be a, a short, a very short term thing and it can be a long term thing. It can be uh, yeah, assistance being provided by colleagues at the moment. And it can also be someone like I have who keeps an eye on my career and really is always there. And is dependable and, and can give advice and is you know without we never really know because you can never really ask the question directly of someone are you shaping my career are you sort of a bit machiavellian in it but i like to think i put almost a faith in it that that mentor has my best interests at heart and uh, can guide me and and, and provide uh, yeah that guidance on correct career choices areas of improvement sort of thing and, and to, to, to work with someone like that is incredibly empowering um, so I, I've recently become a manager myself. I have someone reporting to me uh, and it's having had that good experience 
I hope to emulate that. I have that as a grounding. I have I have learned that and I hope to be able to repeat that with them and provide them with a, a worthwhile and, and satisfying career. In your opinion, what are the best qualities uh, that we should be looking at when we are looking for a mentor for our careers? It's a great question. I think a mentor, of course, by its very nature is very subjective. It's very personal to, to you. But I, I think mentors come in many different shapes and sizes. There can be a variety. I think good listeners, I think you have to be able to, re you have to respect them. They have to be able to listen to you. And those are probably the, the, two, the two main ones. Because if you want someone who's mentoring you on your career, then they can have several sort of qualities. They could, of course, be someone who's very technically adept. So you want to learn from them technically. But they could also be just someone who is has a very good leadership style or they could be someone who always keeps seems to be very level headed in times of conflict or in high stress situations and already there there's three different people who are three different qualities that you, I imagine most people would want to pick up as they're progressing in their in their in their job so let's call it I'd say the ability to listen and and, and someone you respect I think those are the two main ones uh, yeah. What I observed over the last uh, three to four years with regards to mentorship is that certain companies may be offering a mentorship program where one of your colleagues maybe can be your mentor or your buddy or can actually sit and work with you in a very productive way and teaching you on how to progress with things in your career. But I also noticed that, for example, the CAM, the Chartered Institute of Marketing, are offering, for example, their expertise. So they also offer mentorship uh, programs. Now, what do you think? Is it better to have a, an internal mentor, so someone working in the same company with you, or someone external who might actually give you a different insight or a different view on things? Or maybe there's just not a role. Uh, I think it's it's a really good point. I, I think for me personally, as I, as I was saying previously, where it, it, a mentorship or a mentor can be many people, I think it, 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 whatever works for anyone, but I definitely think there is some value to be had for asking questions and interacting through networking from uh, with people from, from different sectors, uh, different parts of your same sector. If you look at construction industry, for instance, I, I love speaking to people within my company, of course, my own, my my colleagues and then I remember speaking uh, you know with you at the at the yen uh, at the city yen gala and the, the the careers fair suddenly it's that osmosis it's talking to others and mentoring as I said for me it could be a short-term or a very long-term thing it could be a little spark it could be a question of oh we were doing this and we learned this and suddenly someone that you that you're speaking to for the first time chips in with some knowledge and all of a sudden that is gained, that, that, that's that conversation that's been had, that's the power of the network. And I think if you do that sufficiently and it gets, it grows wider and wider, you get those different sort of experiences and that, and the benefit of that different, those different, that different knowledge. So yeah, when, when organizations are given these kind of opportunities, I think if you can do to take them is, is, is a really good, is a really good idea. Um, say men mentoring comes from so many different sources and, can, you, most people will say that they maybe have perhaps one or two main people, but then they'd be surprised when they look over many years, they look at the skills that they've learned. Where has that actually come from? Where have I learned? Where, who have I looked to for that? And they could find themselves that it's actually across many different spheres of influence and many different 
uh, yeah, many different sectors and, and, and opportunities. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And one of the things, for example, in my career, I'm looking at every day. Also, sometimes when I stop uh, and reflect on what I'm doing, so I think those transferable skills I've learned, uh, probably, you're right, they're not always coming from uh, just uh, an individual or just from one or two mentors. We constantly, I think, learn every day. We learn by mistakes for sure, and uh, we do mistakes every day. If we don't do mistakes, uh, as I like to think, uh, probably we're not, we're not working or we're not doing things right because that's, uh, I think... Um, Absolutely, yeah. It's a, a happy consultant is one who is learning. It's, it's well, I'd say not just a consultant, a, a person who is learning through their life daily, day to day. Every day is a school day, I think is a happy proverb. It's, it's, it's the ideal situation to be in. Uh, and in a sector, bringing it back to like a sector like ours, there's so much different technology, there's so many applications, there's so many systems to try and be a subject matter expert on all of them. It's completely impossible. And the more interaction that you can have with people who have that expertise or who have that experience, have that learning, it rubs off. And so I'd say a big believer, as you said, and as you said, in networking and, and having those different conversations and, and being curious above all else, really, when you meet these people asking the questions, it's, it's the type of learning that works for me. So. Have you recently uh, spoke in a uh, public environment? So did you go to any conference and maybe presented uh, some of your work or what can you share from that uh, perspective? Well, I have actually. Um, our, uh, our company is based in Omaha and a large contingent of our London office were there for uh, the staff conference. And when we came back, I wasn't actually presenting there. I got made aware actually that there was an opportunity, but uh, another name had gone forward. When we came back, we were basically asked, uh, my colleague Connor and I were, were asked to, to kind of uh, transmit to the other, the, the rest of the staff, those who hadn't been lucky enough to attend, what we'd been up to, what it meant to us. So that was a that was a presentation, I think, of about seven or eight minutes long with about six or seven slides where I was presenting to the office uh, about that. So that was that was as that was very much, again, sort of a soft factors, what I remembered, what it meant for me, how I would take it forward. Uh, but yeah, public speaking is, is so important. The, the ability to communicate effectively as an engineer, you are constantly a part of the job every day is getting across your ideas either to a colleague or to a layman's audience. So you're always having to tweak the, the detail and the delivery style uh, in what you do. So it's, yeah, the opportunities are many. People perhaps think they don't do as much public speaking as they actually do, but any design team meeting within this career is, is an opportunity and is a platform for, for, for doing your public speaking. A lot of people, of course, express, I think, apprehension and fear about doing it to, to larger audiences. and Unfortunately, that's where I do I do enjoy doing that sort of thing. Um, yeah, the, the 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 opportunities, as you as you mentioned, do those things of recent have, have been quite numerous. Uh, certainly within the the office and the, the the company, and then on previous occasions, I've also had a, when I was part of Sibsi's Young Engineer Network, I, I I had three or four opportunities to do discussions and, and present at events. We have time now for the last question, uh, Jairo. And uh, what do you reckon has, has been the biggest change and uh, where that big change uh, led us to or where it's leading us to in the future? Certainly, I think to, to recall a, a very unfortunate event, what, what happened with the pandemic, I think, has led to the biggest change in working practice that I've seen, uh, not only in my industry, but across many sectors, of course, and that is the introduction 
um, the mass acceptance by a lot of employers of uh, you know teleconferencing, working from home, remote working. You know, when I joined the industry, of course, it was very much about present, you know, presenteeism. You were in the office. Uh, teleconferencing, video conferencing uh, facilities were very much very exotic affairs. I think they were used by very large consultancies and practices for working across time zones. Uh, and even then, they they were riddled with glitches and they were very unreliable. You know, fast forward to what we're looking at now, of course. And it's fascinating, of course, to see, you know, for a while, of course, we were all stuck at home. I was very fortunate enough to be able to continue working as a consultant, even if I needed to visit sites, those were still kept open as well. Uh, but we're now looking at most employers have to look at offering something like a free, you know, two or three days working from home in a week. That's just that's, that's, that's part of it. And it's funny if I if I've been going in as a graduate now, I think I would have suffered two, three years ago from the lack of face time. It's very important when you're starting out a, um, a career to have that time with your peers to be able to get those uh, that mentoring, as we spoke about previously. But looking at it now, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a new dad and, and I really appreciate the, the ability to just have those sort of stolen moments with with my daughter. Uh, I'm working at home, of course, I'm not babysitting, but if she's around the house, then you're suddenly getting more time with um, uh, with your child as opposed to you know seeing them at 7 30 and then going back to see them at six o'clock when you get back from a normal office day so i think that flexibility that has now been introduced i'd like to think within certainly with the consultancy sector and how people have certainly i've been able to approach a better work-life balance i think that's the biggest change and and going forward that 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 acceptance of that working style it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real game changer it's a real in a watershed moment uh, and we'll see how it goes ahead and which employers best adapt to it uh, but, but yeah i think i think that's that's the main one i'm fully on board with you i think uh if there's one now the positive things out of uh, two years of uh, two very long years of uh, pandemic yes. actually that's it so in 2023 we will be talking more and more about uh, well-being uh, mental health uh, and all these topics which are quite constant even on uh, on scrolling our LinkedIn feeds every day. So thanks for that. Thank you very much, Marco. Unless you have anything else you want to add, I would like to say thank you very much, Hyrof, for uh, joining us on this podcast. I think uh, you gave us a very uh, broad and uh, very solid, I think, uh, view of what's your experience and uh, where, where did your last uh, 10 to 12 years of your career brought you to? And I think you're in a very successful and uh, strong position. So thanks for that. And uh, we wish you all the best uh, for the future. Thanks very much for listening. Stay tuned with SFS uh, on our podcast platforms and uh, talk to you next month. Uh, see you.